The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Matthew 16:18 is the verse that we have been considering for many, many weeks in our study. And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there in the last part of that verse we find our subject, which is the perpetuity of the church, which means that the church will prevail against all the assaults that Satan brings, and Satan's attacks will never be successful in destroying the Lord's church. Now, in the past several months, we've looked at a lot of different information uh, about the church. We've looked at the oppression of the church. We've looked at persecution. Uh, We've talked about a flood of false doctrines that have tried to worm their way into the core doctrines of the faith to try and destroy them. And that's what Satan does in his attacks. His attacks vary. His attacks are many. His wiles are diversified, as the Word of God says. But he's never been successful in his attempts to destroy God's, God's church. Now, Satan's goal is always that. He wants to destroy the truth of the word. He is set against the gospel of Christ. It's his goal to destroy it. And it's our goal as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to teach the gospel. And so you can see there's always going to be a conflict between us and Satan. Now, we maintain that the church throughout the centuries has been identified... Uh, in all those centuries. There's always has been a group of uh, believers in every period of time since Christ started the church. There's no time when there hasn't been somebody, some group that was teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say no time, I certainly do mean our time as well. Uh, And we believe that Berean Baptist Church is one of those churches that stands in the line of true New Testament churches going back to the time of Christ. And that's necessary for us. It's necessary that we have the true doctrines to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to be sure that we connect to the New Testament. And if we don't, then we'd better be busy finding a church and joining one that actually does. Now, as I've said many times, we do have the confidence that as we look back in history that we will find churches that have taught the same truths that we teach. Well, in our study, we've progressed through about 15 or 16 centuries Uh, There are true churches in all of those centuries that were going under different names. And that's not really so troublesome to us because Christ didn't actually name the church. And the name is not all that important except when it begins to delineate the doctrine that's contained within. Now, in the past couple of hundred years or so, 300 years or so, that part has been true. That the name of a church can very well tell you what that church believes. And when you say a Baptist church, then uh, you know what Baptist churches have believed. So the names in the past weren't all that important. And so we found Montanists and Ovations and Donatists in the 2nd through the 8th century. There were Paulicians in the 7th through the 16th centuries. There were Waldenses, also known as Valdois, in the 5th through the 16th centuries. And other names such as the Bogomili, who are in the the area of uh, the Balkan Peninsula today, and the Albigenses who are in France, those are all people that came out of the same time period. And so the names will sometimes overlap throughout those centuries, 
because of location. Um, the names might be different in different locations, but the doctrine didn't change. And so when these groups came in contact with one another, they could freely mix with each other because they did have common core doctrines and they were able to fellowship with one another. Now, actually, churches in that time, true churches of the Lord, were united in two ways. Uh, I've mentioned the first, and that is their doctrine. They were united in doctrine, same names, but different beliefs. And uh, that's because as the, the apostles went out uh, in that first century to different places throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the persecution and the communication wasn't all that good and didn't allow much contact between these groups. But we find that they held to the same doctrines that the apostles taught. So even though they're separated and they don't have contact with one another, yet they still preserve the true doctrines of the church that the, Jesus and the apostles had taught. And that's the way that Christ perpetuates his church. Now, contra to the Roman Catholic Church, they, uh, all of these groups that we've talked about have stood for a regenerated church membership. They held to believers' baptism. They opposed church-state government. They believed in salvation by grace through faith alone. They were against hierarchical forms of church government. And the pastors of each of those churches had authority only in their churches, not in any other church. But then the second issue that united these people was the common enemy. And the common enemy throughout most of history has been Roman Catholicism. Now, these people that we're talking about were nonviolent, they were non-aggressive, but they were up a very, a very much violent and oppressive, corrupt system. And at times they had to defend themselves against that system whenever they could. But most of the time they were actually defenseless. And that's because Rome did not send choir boys to convert them. They sent crusaders, they sent an army, seasoned battle-hardened soldiers that were called crusaders, and they came with their weapons, and they came with a decree from the Pope to exterminate anybody that would not comply. And so these early Baptists were hunted down wherever they went. They were cruelly tortured. Uh, sometimes, as I had mentioned in one of our lessons, they would do things like this. They would herd them into wooden structures that were built for this particular purpose. And when they got them in, they would lock them in, and then they would set those buildings on fire. And there were thousands that were killed that way. Masses of them were killed. And there's not a few instances where thousands were killed at one time because there were actually thousands of believers that were scattered throughout Asia Minor and through uh, um, Eastern Asia, and or Western Asia, I should say, and, and in Europe as well. And and so they were they were relentlessly persecuted, pursued by this common enemy that, uh, of Roman Catholicism. And so one of the things that happened, though, in running from place to place, I mean, what, what early churches were doing, these early believers were doing, they were trying to escape that persecution, and they would have to move from one place to the other. And as they went from one place to another, they kept dropping all of these seeds of the gospel. And so what Rome tried to do, they tried to stamp them out, but inadvertently what they did was blow the dandelion and the seeds went everywhere and the gospel prospered and many people were saved and so those seeds are deposited all over throughout Europe, Asia and Africa. Well having discussed all of that we're, we are getting close to the time of the Reformation and before we get there I still have two more groups that I want to talk to you about. 
Uh, your outline shows you that we are in the fourth period of the church, which is called the Middle Ages, or sometimes known as the Dark Ages. And this is the time that leads up to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church had hit the height of its power in the 11th through the 13th centuries, and they did that by suppressing educational and cultural advance. And so most of Western Europe was very depressed and dark because of the policies of Roman Catholicism. Now, we have been discussing those Baptists throughout that period, and I'll give you a few of their names once again. I just mentioned them a moment ago. The Paulicians, the Waldenses, the Bogomili, the Albigenses. That's just a few of their names. There are many more. And then also in our discussion, we talked some about British Christianity, and I think most of us are are interested in that part of it because uh, Baptist churches in this country are mostly of that stock that comes from the English Baptists. But to all the names that we've talked about before, I want to add two more that I really think that, that are interesting. And, and I picked these two out as opposed to all the, all the other names because I, I did think myself that these are interesting people. The first of these was in Holland, and they went to preach in England. And the second was in England but they heavily influenced those that were in Eastern Europe. Now, the first group, which is number six on your listening sheet tonight, is the Lollards, the Lollards who are found in the 14th and the 15th centuries. And you can see by that date that we are getting within uh, about 100 years of the Protestant Reformation. And so these two groups, these next two groups, are actually called pre-reformers, uh, and they had a direct influence on the reformers of the 16th century. Now, don't get too concerned about that right now, that we, they're pre-reformers. Uh, the Protestant Reformation came from the influence of these men, but I don't mistake that the followers of these people were Protestants themselves because they weren't. But the Lawlers, now that's a very interesting group. Uh, the principal leader of that group is a man by the name of Walter Lollard, and we don't know if he actually gave his name to the group or if the group gave their name to him. Uh, looking at that, that word, uh, the original etymology of that word, it's believed that Lollard actually refers to a low-tone type of singing, like singing a lullaby. And that information is pertinent to us because Walter Lollard was a Waldensian bard. Now, first of all, he was a Waldensian, and that tells us that uh, he was a Baptist, but he was also a bard. How many of you know what a bard is? Okay, we got one or two of you that know what a bard is. Well, in those days, they had people that were called bards, and a bard is actually a poet. And sometimes what these poets would do is they would sing their poetry. Now, William Shakespeare was known as the bard of Avon, and that doesn't mean that he went door-to-door selling Avon and singing to people. But, uh, I mean, he might have gone door-to-door, I don't know, but he didn't sell Avon, and he might have sung, I don't know that either. But uh, Walter Lollard was a Waldensian bard who migrated to Holland. And interestingly about him, uh, he, he, was, he would use his poetry and his singing to gather crowds into, into public places, and uh, he would recite his poetry. So the poetry was actually the draw that he would use to get people together, and then when he gathered them together, he would begin to preach to them the gospel. Now, those of you that were in our... Um, outreach training programs uh, the la- last year, you remember Ray Comfort and how he would use things like uh, the optical illusion cards that, that he had and those tracks, the million dollar bills, you remember those that, that he used, and that was 
his draw. I mean, that's what he would use to get people to gather. And, and then when he gathered them, and he could begin to preach to them. So gospel presentations are sometimes done that way. And what Walter Lawler did was to draw people in with his poetry. And when he did that, Walter Lawler passed out gospel tracts. Of course, they weren't printing those back then, but he had gospel tracts that he passed out. They weren't chick tracts, if you're familiar with those. But he was passing out Lawler tracts, and uh, these Lawler tracts had scripture on them. And, and Walter Lawler was a very eloquent preacher. He was a great singer, and, and through that, he attracted a lot of people. You know, I've met some preachers that are good singers, and uh, often I like their singing better than I do their preaching. I remember the, the man who sang at my father's funeral several years ago. Uh, he was a pastor of a church and also a very, very good singer. And when you can mix those two things together, the preaching of the gospel and good gospel singing, that makes a very powerful, a very powerful combination. Uh, when the Holy Spirit is in both of those mediums, that is a good method of, of getting the gospel out to people through preaching and through singing. Now, let me say this about singing, though, and I'm going to take a few minutes to sidetrack here for just a little bit to talk to you about singing. Uh, singing is a, is, a, is, a, is a very good thing. But what we don't want to do is to overwhelm our services with singing to the exclusion of preaching. Singing is not the Lord's method for getting the gospel out. Now, you, you may have the gospel in song. That's possible. But that's not the Lord's message. He, he, the way that he gets that out, he saves people through the preaching of the gospel. And so what we should never do is to put singing in front of preaching as if that's the most important thing and if, as if that is actually the worship of the church. The real worship of the church comes in through the preaching of the word of God and then it can be accented by, by the gospel in song. Now, then secondly about that. It, it is great to have that good gospel message in the song. And so what we try to do is to look for songs that do have a strong message. And that's why we've been weeding out some of the songs that we've sung in the past that have a weaker message. And we replace those with songs that have a stronger one. And there are some really good songs that have come out in, in the past few years. And they are, many of them just plainly Superior to the message of many songs that came out of the revival period in the 19th century. Now, a song that I can just think of right off the top of my head is one that we sang this morning. How Deep the Father's Love, that's a new song. But that song has a tremendous message in it. Now, there's some, though, who like old songs, and they like old songs just because they're old songs. Uh, they're familiar with them. They don't want to learn anything new, and they think that old songs are the best songs. Well, I think if you did this, if you took some time to compare the lyrics of some of the old revival songs, um, if you look at those objectively, then you're not going to have too much trouble figuring out which ones are the best. And, and you might be able to get over the idea that a new song must be a bad song. And that's what a lot of people think. Well, here's the thing. New songs can be sung in a bad way. And old songs can be sung in a bad way. So if we sing the new ones in the right way, then I think that we'll be blessed more than ever before. Now, a third observation that I would make about that, that there are some people who say that music is just sort of a neutral thing, that it really doesn't matter 
what you sing, how you sing it. Music is totally subjective, and it doesn't have any ability to, to affect you one way or another. And so they would say, well, any kind of music that you play in the church, that's fine. doesn't matter what you use, just use whatever you like. And so there are people that like rock and roll. And so there's rock and roll churches. And there are people who like rap. And that one blows my mind. But you can actually find people that use rap in church services, and they're, and they're okay with that because that's the kind of music that they listen to anyway. Now, I have to admit to you that I'm probably a little bit more open-minded than some people are to music, but I'm not going to say that music can neither help nor hinder a church service because I think it definitely can. Uh, an example is when I first started going to the Shepherds Conference that I was stunned on the first day that I went went and heard the beautiful music. I mean, the songs that were sung were, were beautiful. They were the best, most meaningful songs of the faith. There were 3,500 men that stood up and they began to sing praises to the Lord. And the music was really powerful. You have a full orchestra there. You have a choir of about 200 singers, choir people that, that sing in absolute precision. And that was just amazingly uplifting to hear that singing. But then on the next day, the music changed. The beat changed. The instruments changed. And here I am sitting there going from ecstasy to agony that I talked about this morning. And so my whole demeanor changed about that service. And uh, quite frankly, I was just deflated. My spirit was deflated by that. And the, and the singing and the way that it was done almost completely destroyed my mood and I realize that some of that's subjective. I mean, we, we like the things that we like. Uh, music is subjective in some ways. And to their credit, I would have to say this, that the songs had good lyrics. I had no problem at all with the lyrics, but I had problems with the way that they were sung. Now, the way that we try to sing these newer songs are like traditional hymns when we use them in our church. Uh, and uh, I think that they're better songs than songs that uh, came out of the, at that revival period under Moody and Sankey. Uh, so that church down there, you know, I, I credit it with good song selection. But the way that it was played, the, the message of the song was overcome by the music and the body language and all the things that go along with that. The lyrics just get totally lost in all of that. And the singing of those songs become more, how does that affect me, rather than how do I worship God? And so I was negative about that, almost to the point that it could destroy all the positive influences of the conference. And folks, that's how powerful that music can be. So don't tell me that music is immaterial and it doesn't affect us. There is a church style and there is a secular style. And as far as I'm concerned, those two should never meet. We worship the Lord through song and through music. And so we need to be careful about what kinds of songs and music that we use. Now, Dr. Peter Masters, who is the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which is where Charles Spurgeon was the pastor, has a great article on his website about this. Sometime if you want to look that up, I would encourage you to do it. And in this article, he takes John MacArthur to task over some of the music that they use in, in uh, his church and, by extension, of course, what happens in that conference that we go to. But he took him to task on the music, and he showed how that music can downgrade the doctrines of the faith if the music is not done properly. 
So when I go to that conference, I go in with my eyes wide open. I know what, I, what to expect, and now I don't get so deflated because I know what's coming. And to their credit, this last conference that I went to, they toned down that quite a bit, and the music on the second day was, was different and not, not very bad at all. So I don't know, maybe some people complained about it or whatever. If they did, praise the Lord for that. Uh, they finally did get it right. So that's my little excursus here on music there for just a minute. And uh, I don't normally chase rabbits in the sermon, but when I have an opportunity to talk about something like that, I think it's important for us to do that. And I got off on it, of course, because of Walter Lollard. Walter Lollard was someone who was a good singer, and he used that singing to help him to draw the crowd so he could preach the gospel of Christ. So what Lollard did after he was in Holland, he went to England, and he began to preach there. And there were so many people that were converted that really something had to be done about him. Now, the king of England was off fighting a war in Ireland, and he received word that he needed to come back because this fellow, Walter Lollard, was preaching, and there were so many people being converted that something had to be done about it. And so the king of England did return, and he used the usual method um, of torture and of fire to try and squelch that revival. And so what they did was they took Walter Lollard and they burned him at the stake in 1320. Now, for much of the time, these groups were in hiding. Waldenses, Albigenses, the Lollards, and so on, they were in hiding because of persecution. But there were other times when they did stand up and preach the gospel openly in public places, and that's how so many people were converted. Now, these are people that were right in their New Testament doctrine, and they're also right in New Testament practice because they're following exactly what the apostles did. Remember, the apostles would go to the synagogues and to the temple, and they weren't welcome there with the message that they preached. And often they were taken, they were persecuted, they were beaten because of the message that they preached. And eventually all of those apostles died martyr deaths except the apostle John. So when you see someone like, say, Ray Comfort, and he goes into public places to preach, I think that may put a lot of us to shame. You remember that video when... He was preaching in, in Jerusalem, and there was a guy who came up and spit on him, and he kept preaching, and this fellow kept spitting on him. Well, most of us won't do that because we don't like to get spit on, and so we just don't go out and talk to anybody about it. Well, the danger of the, to the Lollards was not somebody hawking one up and, and spitting on them, but rather it was someone coming to them with a torch and a pyre and putting them on there and burning them to death. Well, they did recall the king of England. He came back, and, he, and they killed Walter Lollard. When he came back, he found out this wasn't a false alarm. Uh, the, the gospel had reached many different places in England, and these followers of Walter Lollard uh, just were, were all over the place there then. And then so many became followers of him, and uh, the next person that I want to talk to you about Lollard was burned at the stake, and still there were people that were converted. And that in itself is, is just a miraculous thing. Why do people turn to Christ in the midst of persecution? Why do they come to Christ when they, when they very well know that it could be a death warrant for them? Well, I want you to look at something. Let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 5 for just a minute. Acts chapter 5, and you'll recognize that this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias was a believer, and he lied about what he'd given to God. He said that he gave all, 
And I suppose that Ananias hoped that people would applaud him and think that he was holy because he'd made such a great sacrifice. And he didn't give all. He was a hypocrite. And so when the uh, apostles came to him, and there was no compulsion about that a person should have to give everything that they had to the church, so he was under no compulsion to do it. But when the apostles came and they asked him, Peter asked him, did you give everything? Well, Ananias said, well, yes, I gave everything, but that was a lie. And so what God did was to strike him dead on the spot. Then later, his wife Sapphira came along, and she didn't know that her husband had just died. And so she was asked, did you give all to the Lord? And Sapphira said, yes, we gave it all. And she lied too, and so she was struck dead. Now, what Peter said to them was that you haven't, he said to Ananias, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. You've lied to God about this. And so that's why God struck them dead. Now, folks, that would be a very, very strong incentive not to get mixed up with Christians. I mean, never mind that the Jews might kill you or that the Romans might kill you. God might kill you. That's a strong incentive against being a Christian. So it would be just best to stay away from Christians altogether. But look at verse number 11 in Acts chapter 5. It says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. There's this great fear came upon the church and those that heard these things. Well, do you think they'd be afraid after they saw what happened to Ananias? And, and the ones that, that heard about this are not the saved people that in the church. They're already mentioned in the first part of that. Fear came upon the church and upon as many as heard these things. So who are the and as many as heard these things? Well, those would be people that are yet unconverted. Great fear came upon them also. Well, we would ask then, are unbelievers, were these unbelievers chased away because of what had happened? Well, we go down to verse number 14, and it says, And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. And so more people were being saved, even though they knew that the enemies of the church might kill them, and they knew that God might kill them if they were hypocrites. Now, thank the Lord he doesn't kill hypocrites in the church today. We, none of us would probably be here. We'd have an empty church building. But people still came to the Lord. They still were saved. Thousands of people were converted. And you wonder, how does that happen? How can you take and persecute people, burn them at the stake? How do you do that? And still there are other people out there that want to hear the gospel of Christ and be saved. Well, I'm going to tell you this, that there is no one who comes to Christ if all the matter is it's just left up to them. That if this is just a matter of I want to or I don't want to, because anybody that sees persecution, sees the death of, of people for their belief, is not going to come to Christ if this is just a matter of them. So what has to happen is that the Holy Spirit has to overcome natural opposition to the gospel. And that's the only way that you can explain thousands and actually millions of converts being made while there's persecution. And so that proves to us that regeneration is a monergistic act of God because you're never going to get people to cooperate with a change if that change means instant death. God has to do this work by a sovereign act or it's not going to be done. And that's how you get converts in persecution because God has to work on the heart and change that person's heart so that they will believe. Now, let's go on because I want to talk to you about this other man 
uh, he worked uh, hand in hand right after with the followers of Walter Lollard. And this was John Wycliffe. And his followers are the Wycliffeites. And they're in the 13th and the 14th centuries. Now, this is the same period that we're looking at, but more towards the end or middle to the end of the 14th century. And John Wycliffe was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. So he was in that awakening, just before the awakening of the Reformation. He was one of the forerunners of it. And he actually was a Roman Catholic priest, and he was a scholar. Now, let me tell you what was happening during that time that, that caused a, a revolt in the Catholic Church. Now, I told you that the Catholic Church had reached the zenith of power about the 13th century. And from that point, the papacy started to lose its favor with its own people. There was immorality, and there was scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. There were all kinds of internal squabbles that were going on, and that resulted in the papacy being split. And so you had two areas, uh, two different areas of being controlled by Roman Catholics, or two different popes, actually, one who is ruling in France and one who's ruling in Rome. And what happened was that the people were taxed with supporting these two papal states. And that was a very unpopular thing because the Roman Catholic Church was taking all of their money. And so the, all this immorality was going on, uh, many, so, so much wickedness. Uh, priests were living in adultery, and this was actually caused by celibacy, and that is an unnatural position for people. And so priests would have their affairs with women in the church. Even the Pope had his mistresses. And we find that the same problem exists in Roman Catholicism today because of their celibacy for priests. You have now that extended into acts of homosexuality and pedophilia and so on. And uh, it's because of this unnatural condition of priests not being married. And that's a problem that's gone on in the Roman Catholic Church for actually centuries. And if you want a reference on this, uh, I, I'd encourage you to get Charles Chinnicky's book, who was a former Roman Catholic priest called 50 Years in the Church of Rome. And he explains a whole lot of the things that were going on uh, of, a, uh, of that immoral nature in Roman Catholicism. Well, as I said, during that time, the Pope had his mistresses, the priests were corrupt, the whole system was corrupt. But there were priests like Wycliffe, who, who wanted to get rid of that corruption. And in 1376, Wycliffe wrote a work entitled Of Civil Dominion. And in this work that he wrote, he asserted that there must be morality as a basis of ecclesiastical leadership. Now, that's strange that somebody would have to argue that position. But that's what Wycliffe had to do. And so what he proposed to do was to take property away from priests that were immoral. Well, they would take the property away from priests. His proposal is they, the immoral priests, their property is taken away. It's given to those priests who are moral. And that position of Wycliffe was supported by the nobles of the time. And that's what actually protected him from being killed by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, here's the problem, though. Immoral people want to be immoral. And that immorality went all the way to the Pope. And that made John Wycliffe an enemy of Roman Catholicism. There wasn't any love for John Wycliffe. Now, listen to this. As time goes on, Wycliffe went after other serious issues in the Roman Catholic Church. In 1379, he wrote again, and he insisted that the Pope is not the head of the church. He said that Christ is the head of the church, 
And the way that you can know about this is to know the Bible, and you can't know the Bible unless you read it. Now, that's a novel position, isn't it? You can't know the Bible unless you read it. And what the Roman Catholic Church did was to try to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people for this very reason. It was because they knew if the people knew the Bible, then they would know that there is no spiritual authority for the Pope. They would see that that's a man-made system. And so what Wycliffe did was to translate the Bible into English. And in 1382, he completed the first manuscript of the New Testament in English. In 1384, there was another man by the name of Nicholas of Hereford who completed the Old Testament in English. And so then, in the end of the 14th century, for the very first time, English-speaking people had the Bible in their own language. Now today, there are translators called the Wycliffe Translators, and this is their business. They take the Bible and they translate it into languages of people who have never had access to the Bible. And Wycliffe's goal was stated this way, He said that what he wanted was for the common plowboy in England to know more of the Word of God than the priest in their parishes. And Wycliffe's translation of the Bible made that possible. Well, along with Bible reading comes greater knowledge, and that led Wycliffe to attack one of Rome's cardinal doctrines, which is transubstantiation. Wycliffe said that Christ was not literally present in the Mass. He said there's a spiritual presence there, but there's not a literal presence of Christ in the Mass. And he said that Christ can be apprehended only by faith and not through the sacrament of the Mass. And of course, that's what Rome teaches, that the way that you contact Christ, that you come, uh, that you can be saved is through the taking of the Mass. Now, if I can find it here, I, I had something that I wanted to read to you. Here it is. This was given to me by by Lino, just a couple, three or four days ago this past week. And this is his um, record of his first communion. Now, he's changed since then, so don't worry. (laughs) This is the record of his first communion. And uh, this is one of those things that I find uh, eminently heretical, but strangely fascinating. So I want to read it to you. Just a small part of this. It says, Jesus made it possible for men to feed on his sacred body and blood when at the Last Supper with his apostles, his first bishops and priests, he gave them power, gave them the power to change bread and wine into his real body and his real blood. You're going to make your first Holy Communion. This means that for the first time, you're getting to partake of the living body and blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. What an awesome thought. You are more privileged than the angels of God in heaven. This is the first time you will be receiving the body and blood of Christ. There will be a second and a third time. There will be many times and there will be a last time. You must strive to keep your heart pure so that when you receive Christ at the hour of death, you will be as worthy then as you are now on this day of your first Holy Communion. You eat your daily food so that you might have a strong and healthy body. In other words, you eat to live. If you do not eat, you will soon die. The same holds true for the food which Christ has given us, his own body and blood. If you eat it, you will have a healthy soul, strong with the grace of God, and you shall have eternal life, and you shall never know the everlasting death that is the lot of the devil and his fallen angels and those who follow them. To achieve this wonderful gift of unending life with God, 
you must go to Holy Communion frequently, as often as you can, and refresh yourself with the divine food, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't need to be stuck in here, because that has nothing to do with this. Roman Catholic Church tells you that you are, you, you meet Christ, that you can have eternal life and continually partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I've mentioned many before, the idea of transubstantiation is, an, is a repeated sacrifice of Christ, which the Bible says is never needed. Christ was sacrificed once for all. You eat of him once by faith, and you never have to partake of him in that way again because that is an eternal thing. Well, Walter Lollard printed the scriptures, translated the scriptures rather into English, and this is what the Bible teaches. Now you can see that that's beginning to underline, uh, uh, undermine the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. It starts to undermine the sacerdotal system so that now, with the truth, the priest can no longer withhold salvation from the people. And when you take away the power of the priest, you take away the power of the Roman Catholic Church to make money. And that's a very serious thing for them. And so the Roman Catholic Church could no longer abide John Wycliffe. And so what they did is they took away his place of preaching. Now one thing I think that you should understand is that Walter, or rather John Wycliffe never did come all the way to the truth. I mean, he never did really understand the implications of all things that he taught, and so he tried to remain a Roman Catholic, and he didn't become a Baptist. Now, he did know that you take away the power of the priests, that you take away their power over the people, and again, as I said, you take away the money-making schemes. That's detrimental to the whole system, but he tried to stay in that. And as a pre-reformer, the things that he wrote, he was trying to correct that. And, and he came out against infant baptism, and he said that the, the, the scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice, and now you're getting right at the Pope. You're coming right to his doorstep now because he doesn't have the power to tell anybody to do anything. They can't make any traditions that are binding. So we know what happened next. Uh, he was a popular preacher, so they took his pulpit away from him because of these things that he said. So Rome pushed him out. He had too much support, but he had too much support from the people, and so they couldn't kill him. So they couldn't kill him... And in 1382, they condemned him, though, and they kicked him out of the church. And as I said, when he, they did, they lost his pulpit and his place to preach. So here's what happened to the followers of Wycliffe. You remember those others that we called the Lollards? Well, they began to take up the cause of John Wycliffe. I said that Wycliffe could never claim, we can't claim him to be a Baptist because he never embraced the consequences of, of the doctrine that he preached against. But the people that followed him joined up with the Lollards, and the Lollards took over that position, and they were Baptists. The Wycliffeites who came after Wycliffe were actually Baptist, and as late as the 1930s, there were still churches called Lollards in England, and they were still following the same principles that Wycliffe taught. So what happened to him? Well, he died. Wycliffe died. And then 30 years after his death, he was condemned at the Council of Constance, and they dug up his body, and they burned his bones, and they threw the ashes in the river. Now, here's what Rome does. If they can't get you when you're alive, they'll get you when you're dead. And they believe that they have power 
over death. They can actually control a person after that person's died. So what they did was, I, I suppose that John Wycliffe was in purgatory, and they said, well, let's go get him out of there. And they got him out of purgatory, and they threw him into hell. And you can believe all that if you like. One more person that I will mention to you before we close tonight, and uh, that's a man by the name of John Huss. You've probably heard of Huss. He was uh, rector of the University of Prague, and he was also a Roman Catholic priest, and he began to follow the teachings of Wycliffe. And at that same council of Constance that, that condemned Wycliffe and dug up his body and burned the bones, that same council condemned Huss, only Huss was still alive. And they took Huss and they burned him at the stake. Well, Huss has the same, had the same position as Wycliffe. He was still a priest and he never came out of Roman Catholicism. But again, we know what happened to his followers. That those who followed him, and he was a follower of the teachings of Wycliffe, the followers of both of those men asked for ordination from the Waldenses. And so they became Baptists. And so that's how the Baptist church gained a strong influence in Eastern Europe, especially in Czechoslovakia. Well, I want, I want to end with that, but I want to point out to you one other very rich fact, and um, I think this is important for us. We do know the theology of these people. I mean, we're getting into the time where there are, there, there's things that are written about this. The things that they believed are, are not mysteries to us. They believed in the essentials of the faith, but they actually went on, uh, beyond some of those essentials, essentials that we talked about that constitute a church. There are, of course, other doctrines that are in the Bible. And so these are people that, were, that believed in things like strict communion, restricted communion, one of the things that we teach here in Berean Baptist Church. Those people were holding on to that kind of doctrine. They also believed the doctrines of grace. Uh, these are Baptists who believed the doctrines of grace before Luther and Calvin were heard of. Historians say that they held on to the truths of election and predestination. So the sovereign God that they taught is the same sovereign God who preserved the truth of the church through them. So I look at things like that and I think, well, well thank God that we are like these Baptists of the past in many more ways than one because we closely ally ourselves with the very same doctrines that they taught. It's great to look at history. And as we get closer to the time of modern Baptists, we'll, we'll be able to see more of that, actually. We can look right at the writings and see what they said about these very things in their confessions of faith. So we will continue this next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the look that we've had tonight into your word and at church history. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, that you have preserved your church through all these many centuries, that the gospel has come down to us pure and clear and believable, and that people can be saved today by believing the very same thing Jesus and the apostles taught in the, in the New Testament. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a church where your doctrines can be taught and uh, people can hear and believe and become strong followers of you. So bless us, Lord. We thank you for this time we've had together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, 
you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.